With trepidation, Farah meets the ragtag group of individuals Resand considers his inner circle. Despite their long history together and complicated relationships, Farah feels a connection to each that convinces her she can work with them and with Resand. Though they experience an initial setback during their first attempt to enter the prison, Farah and Resand face the depths of Prithian's most dangerous domain to confront the bone carver. Unspeakable truths are shared that bring Feyre and Resand closer to each other and pave the way for their next adventure. The views expressed by the hosts are entirely their own and in no way represent the thoughts or intentions of the original author. This podcast is a discussion shared to spark thought and conversation on the characters and themes of this novel. Though the hosts speak mostly within the constraints of this book, Series spoilers may be discussed with or without warning. Explicit language, as well as themes of sex, violence, abuse, self-harm, and depression will recur throughout this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Book Talk for Book Talk, a podcast where we deep dive into the writing of your favorite novels. This season, we're exploring Sarah J. Mass's most beloved novel in the Court of Thorns and Roses series. This is Jack. And I'm Amy. This week, we're discussing chapters 16 through 18 in A Court of Mist and Fury. The question we're asking ourselves this episode is, to what extent is Feyre open to forming new relationships or attachments? Some themes we're going to look into are the forms of power and how people express it, as well as groundwork. Before we jump into our analysis, I would really love the opportunity to get on a soapbox about something that really freaking bothers me about the opening of chapter 16. We've never been on a soapbox before with this podcast. I have never, never, ever stepped on a soapbox before. Truth. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 15 ended with Feyre seeing two winged males in the doorway grinning at Reese and her. So these two winged males must be facing Feyre, right? But then when Feyre begins to describe Cassian and Asriel at the start of chapter 16, she describes the identical long swords that were each strapped down the column of their spines, the blades beautiful in their simplicity. I'm sorry, but how can Feyre see (laughs) these swords if the Bat Boys are facing her? (laughs) It's a great question. I struggle with this chapter uh, quite a bit. I have to say that this chapter and this scene and where we meet the Night Court is probably my least favorite scene out of all the books. And the writing and dialogue feels really forced. Uh, Example, what you just read to us. I have a theory. I think this was either the first chapter she wrote or the last chapter she wrote. Yeah, I can see that because there's a number of inconsistencies. Yeah. That being said, this is our personal opinion. We're going to leave our personal opinion here at the door and we're going to let the literature do the talking. Because we never do the talking. We never do the talking, nor do we ever give our opinions. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope this isn't someone's first episode. (laughs) So let's get to the analysis. In her first interaction with Cassian and Asriel, Asriel gives Feyre a new title. Asriel says, quote, Cassian also excels at pissing everyone off, especially amongst our friends. So, as a friend of Resand, good luck. Feyre thinks, quote, a friend of Resand, not savior of their land, not murderer, not human fairy thing. So I have a few thoughts about this. That she's dramatic? She is dramatic. (laughs) 
So dramatic. So dr- not murder. Not savior. Not human fairy thing. Oh, my. First, this sets the tone for the night for Feyre. She has not been put on a pedestal as she expects based on her time at the spring court. Instead, the title makes her an equal to the other members of the inner circle, as they are also Rhysand's friends. Or so I assume. <laughs> like, him and Amryn aren't really friends. No, no, no. They're just, you know, they tolerate each other. Tolerate. Additionally, I think that this is the first title that Feyre doesn't hate, being called Rhysand's friend. And maybe she even likes it. And if you're not convinced that she likes it, then maybe it's the first title she identifies with. This really, in my mind, is a stepping stone for Feyre, bridging the gap between the titles she's been given thus far and hated to the titles she will receive that become part of her identity. Titles are such an important part to Farah in this book. It tells the story of her recovery and her acceptance. So to have all of these other titles, right, savior, murder, human, fairy thing, instantly stripped away from her, it should leave her bare in theory, but what it actually does, it resets her and she gets to claim these things eventually. Also, the title of friend, it's something that Farah has desperately wanted to give someone. That's why she keeps calling Lucian her friend, even though he is not her friend. And it's why she struggles to call Ianthe her friend. If we think about it, Farah doesn't have any friends Mm-mm. ever. Mm-mm. It's really sad. <laughs> It's so sad. She's never had a friend. And there's a reason why she's so desperate to get that title. Now that title and that relationship has been given. And that's why her relationship with Risan is going to be so meaningful to her because he was a friend first. You know, I think that's a really interesting point. However, even though she doesn't reject the title of Risan's friend, she also doesn't actually acknowledge that they're friends. Yeah, she no, never that's calls true. She him a friend. It's like if someone were, if you, someone introduced me as your friend and you didn't claim me right. as your friend, right? I'd be pissed. I know you would be. I'm staring at you now. I know. I'm feeling angry about I, it, just I thinking see, about it. I see you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that Resand ever calls Feyre his friend. That's true. I take everything I said back. The relationship is not based on friendship. No, it's not. It's really not. But I think they're okay with others assuming that they're friends. You know, maybe that's like SJM trying to make. Again, I find this to be a weak chapter. This is a lot of telling, not showing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's one of those situations where she tricked me. That's what she wanted us to believe, that mm. their relationship is based off of friendship, when in actuality, there's no friendship there. Damn it, I fell for it. You fell for the trap. Oh, no. Additionally, we can see how Farah has already differentiated Asriel and Cassian from the Spring Court, even without her really meeting them. Cassian in particular, he should be the biggest reminder of the Spring Court, but instead he does the opposite. Okay, but why should he be a reminder of the Spring Court? Well, thank you, Amy. Thank you for asking me. Remember, Cassian's stones are red, like blood. We've already established Farah is extremely afraid of the color red. And these stones are literally meant to help Cassian kill people. So it should be the most obvious red reminder. And yet she's not terrified. Next, I'm going to give you two quotes. And listener, you get to take a guess. Which quote was said by Braun from the Spring Court and which one was said by Cassian? The first quote, how the hell did you make that bone ladder in the Mittengard worm layer when you look like your own bones can snap at any moment? Quote number two, I have to say that trial with the Mittengard worm Brilliant. One of the most brilliant things I ever saw. All right. So obviously the first one was by Cassian because he wasn't under the mountain. But Farah's reactions are different here. 
With Cassian, she pushes back and asks, how the hell did you manage to survive this long without anyone killing you? Real quick, I just think that's the dumbest retort. As someone who strives for sassy responses in my everyday life, not a great one. Just a cringe every single time. Anyway, so Cassian laughs at that. And this is supposed to represent how different these two courts are. But what I'm seeing is that not only is Cassian bringing up a very traumatic moment for Farah without thinking twice, he's also body shaming her. And here at Book Talk for Book Talk, we do not stand for that. So Cassian, shame on you. So I want to go back to something that you said that you cringe every time you read Farah's reaction. Mm-hmm. I do too. And it's always felt really out of character for me. Yeah. Because when Braun says it, she doesn't say anything. Yeah. And then suddenly she says something. She fights back. Yes. I finally think I figured out why. Cassian's body shaming her. Remember in Thorns and Roses when Lucian called her scrawny? That's the only other time she really pushed back. Yes. Wow. Good for Farah. Fuck you, Cassian. Yeah. For me, ultimately, it always felt out of character, but now I'm realizing it might actually be in character. It's within character. Still a really crappy response. Agreed. (laughs) I think I would have gone somewhere with like, have we gone this far in this conversation without me shoving my foot up your ass? Excellent. Much, much snappier. Thank you. I'm a snappy person. Going back to red, even when Farrah sees more wearing red, she isn't put off by the color. But at the same time, Farrah is very at odds with herself here. Quote, Moore gave no indication that she noticed and curved her finger towards me. Come sit with me while they drink. I had enough dignity remaining not to look at Reese for confirmation if it was safe. So I obeyed, falling into step beside her. <laughs> How can you have dignity but then immediately obey? Farrah is trying to hold herself together here, but it's not working. She doesn't even know whether to have dignity or to obey. Is it Farrah doesn't know what she's doing or is it SJM doesn't I, know what she's doing? <laughs> and here's why. I want to further your case that maybe this was the first thing SJM wrote. Because, as you said, Feyre doesn't react to the fact that Moore's wearing a red gown. Mm -hmm. One thing we don't have in our notes, Amarin is wearing red lipstick. Fuck off. I forgot that. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So red should have meaning, but... Red's all over the place. It's forgotten here. Maybe she's becoming desensitized to it. No. No, No. (laughs) like literally, I think like the day before was her wedding day and she had a panic attack about the red petals. Right. You're right. So, no, I I don't I don't allow that. (laughs) It's like the wedding day was a couple months ago. Oh, the wedding day was a couple months ago. All right. Fine. The breakup was the day before. Breakup was the day. day, You're right. The breakup was we're going to keep all this in. But she still was freaking out about like Lucian's hair. Yes, you're right. It's just. Yeah, I I don't know. And especially when it comes to Cassian and the fact that his stones are red. His siphons. His siphons. Like, wow, these super killing things should terrify me. And yet here I am. Totally okay. And sassy. (laughs) (laughs) And sassy. And sassy. Trademark. (laughs) That's our new shirt. I'm okay. And sassy. (laughs) I love it. So speaking of Amran, upon Amran's arrival to this dinner scene, we're reminded of something very important about Feyre, and that is that she maintains a shred of her humanity because the red hasn't done it so far. (laughs) Quote, and maybe part of me remained mortal because even though the short, delicate woman looked like Haifei, as Reese had warned me, every instinct was roaring to run, to hide. Feyre's human fear is going to play a big role in how she acts and reacts in the next arc of this novel. 
SJM, to give her credit, is very cleverly reminding us of Feyre's humanity and penchant for fear in this moment, because that's an important part of the survival instinct, and that despite how empty and numb Feyre says she may feel, the need to survive is still strong. Farah also describes Amarin as, quote, She was several inches shorter than me, her chin-length black hair glossy and straight, her skin tan and smooth, and her face pretty borderlining plain. Damn, Farah. I'm sorry. I also take this personally as someone everyone describes as looking like Amarin. You are more, you're not, I was going to say you're more than borderline plain. (laughs) (laughs) You're pretty. You're not plain, borderline or anything. (laughs) That's right. Like, you're so far away from the border. You are middle of America, (laughs) nowhere near a border. Kansas. 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 There's no border near (laughs) you. It's like when Farrah called Amarantha ugly, quote, though lively, she wasn't as devastatingly beautiful as I had imagined. So on the Amarin front, if there's anything we associate with Amarin, it's her love for jewelry. And if there's anything we now know about Farrah at this point in the book, it's her distaste for jewelry. So what does that say about Farrah's feelings towards Amarin? The only other time Farrah has not described a woman as beautiful other than Amarin was Amarantha. These are both women that Farrah immediately knew were extremely powerful and she felt threatened by. Discuss. So I wonder why you brought up the jewelry thing. And the first thing I can think of is, yes, I agree. I think that Farrah obviously was threatened by Amarantha because Mm -hmm. curse. (laughs) Because curse. (laughs) And she's threatened by Amrin as well. But I think it's more than just the fact that she senses her power. It's the fact that Rhysand has just bought this woman jewelry. Mm. And she doesn't know who Amrin is to Rhysand. She's yet. always like, who's this bitch? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. what do you think of the woman who... <laughs> she's not even that cute. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if I'm into this man and I suspect he's into this woman. Yeah, not even that cute. No, I wouldn't not be that great. Into it. No, not into it. Whatever. Right? I'm better than her. Right. (laughs) Women supporting women. (laughs) At its finest. (laughs) Now that we're introduced to the night court, I want to talk about how clothes are used here. Farrah spent several hours getting ready for dinner and wore a dress that she thought was appropriate because this is what she thought was expected of her. But this is also what makes her feel like an outsider. And I want to make a note here. It's self-inflicted. She made herself the outsider here by trying to fit in. Then you have Cassian and Asriel, who are more casual, and they're ready to fight. Moore is also dressed up like Farah, and Amran wears the top and pants set that Farah likes. There's power in clothing and how Farah perceives clothing. And right now, she's just as overwhelmed and confused by the mixed match of clothing in the room. So here's another way to look at the clothing choices. What everyone is wearing suggests a stark contrast between the inner circle and Tamlin's courtiers. Feyre realizes her attire doesn't matter to this group, and that they all had also worn items that were comfortable for them. Attire is not being used to control or overpower anyone here, but instead is a tool to exert one's own power. Moore wears dresses. Cassian and Azrael wear fighting leathers and siphons. Amarin wears what she always wears. And Reese is in his high lord appearance. Unlike the spring court, Feyre, quote, could have shown up in my nightgown, instead of forcing herself to wear a dress that she views as a uniform. I think this is an unspoken invitation that Farrah can be who she wants to be among the inner circle, which wasn't really an option for her in the spring court. So I have a thought. Okay. 
we already established here that Farah hates Amran yes. at this point. <laughs> so does Farah resent Amran because Amran's wearing the exact outfit that Farah would want to wear? Mm, I could see that. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Your jealousy showing, Farah. It's a little tacky. And yet I relate. On the theme of power, food plays an unusual role in this chapter, and I want to take a moment to explore that. In last week's episode, I discussed how Resand shares his food with his inner circle, suggesting he shares power with them instead of using it to dominate them. This is further demonstrated in a couple of ways here. First of all, no one sits at the head of the table, which Feyre specifically calls out and which I think suggests equality. Feyre also considers the food that is served as, quote, simple but elegant, not formal at all. This suggests a level of intimacy and comfort within the group that reflects their interactions. There's no formality here, and there's no posturing among them. Question, what does simple and elegant food look like? Well, apparently it's chicken and veggies. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that's what it was. I can't like, remember off the top of my head. It's simple, but elegant. I don't think I would describe Brussels sprouts as ele- elegant. I just want to know what a simple and elegant meal looks like. I, I want to say it's not mashed potatoes. But it could be. I mean, I would say pizza's not elegant, but you could eat pizza with a fork and knife. Oh, so you're thinking there's no hands in this situation, like it's a fork and knife. Yeah, Maybe that's... multiple forks and multiple Oh, knives. but Farrah doesn't know the rules. Of etiquette? Of etiquette. Oh. She's eating the wrong fork. She's eating the wrong... With the, <laughs> with the wrong fork. No, she's just eating the fork. <laughs> she's like, is this how the night court does it? Is this what we do? <laughs> it's a dingle hopper. <laughs> She starts brushing her hair in the middle of the table. (laughs) So back onto the theme of power. No one seems to be using food to overpower anyone else here. Um, Unless Feyre is really struggling with her etiquette, then maybe that's a sign of power. (laughs) Instead, though, Moore uses the illusion of hunger as a tool to deflect attention and conversation from Feyre when she detects Feyre becoming uncomfortable. I, too, use hunger to get away from uncomfortable situations. That's an excellent... I mean... No one's going to stop you if you're hungry. Right? It's like, oh, I'm really hungry. I have to go. But you're in the middle of a meeting. I don't care. <laughs> it's your mid-year review. Mm. Tacos. Hunger first. It's hunger first. Quote, Amarin sniffed again, and I'd never felt so laid bare. I was tired already, tired of being assessed and evaluated. I'm hungry, Moore said, nudging me with a thigh. Two thoughts. This is the moment I started liking more, but also... Was that super sexual or was that just me? Because she nudged her thigh? Yeah. With her thigh. With her thigh? I don't I don't know. I don't know. Now I'm questioning, have I, I've like hit you with my leg before to get your attention. With your foot? No, the whole leg. I don't know. It's uh Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. <laughs> there's surprisingly a lot of sexual elements in this episode. Yes. Which we will get into. But I don't know. This is also when I started liking more too, mainly because anyone who's willing to feed me, they're my friend. That's right. That's mm-hmm. all that matters is, is. food. <laughs> I can't say that I've had this experience, but Feyre is accustomed to having food used against her. So naturally, she waits for everyone else to start eating first, only taking a bite after Azriel takes a bite. I want to pause here to comment that Feyre really fixates on Azriel in this whole chapter. What is it about him that draws Feyre to Azriel? And is this her inherently trusting him? I think this is Farah identifying Asriel as, you know, one of the scariest people there. And it's almost like when animals let their alpha eat first. Yeah. So you just compared her to an animal? Shit. Or 
Farrah did it to herself, and she compared herself to an she animal. Compared, and, which she does, I'm, again, in this episode. She does, yeah. I really feel like I'm a victim blaming here. <laughs> One food passage that I do want to evaluate is when Moore gives Farrah wine. Quote, I hadn't even realized Moore had poured me a glass until I finished my first sip, and she clinked her own against mine. So I question the use of wine here. This feels like another instance of Moore trying to force friendship onto Feyre, and is the type of interaction that made me suspect Moore was a bad player during my first read. Though Feyre is not being forced to drink the wine, the whole exchange feels presumptuous of Moore and made me question her motives. Am I crazy? Other ways in life, yes, but in this time, no. Uh, <laughs> you're giving me such a stink eye. <laughs> You're, you're... I can't look at you now. <laughs> no. It is normal to ask someone first, would you like wine? Yes. I, like, have we ever poured each other wine without asking? No. No. Some, do I text you saying, pour me a glass? I'm there five minutes? Yes. The fact is that Moore did not ask her. Moore made the choice for Farah. Did Farah choose to drink the wine? Obviously. But the representation of power and control is there. And really, it's reminiscent of Farrah's time under the mountain with Resand, where she ended up just accepting the wine without question. Also, the fact that Amarin doesn't eat food is pretty great, I'd say. Amarin drinks blood. That just screams power on power. It's very intentional on Sarah J. Mass's part. Amarin doesn't need regular food, which normally represents power. And Amarin is fueled by the source of life, aka blood. Which is just the ultimate way of saying she is the most powerful room. She's the most She's powerful, the most powerful room. room. <laughs> She's the most powerful person in the room. I was really excited. She's the most powerful room. We're keeping all that. Yeah. That's the other shirt we're making. She's the most powerful room. <laughs> oh, gosh. It means nothing. When Feyre calls Cassian Lord Cassian, she and the reader learn the makeup of the inner circle and how they're just a bunch of ragamuffins compared to Tamlin's court. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't appreciate ragamuffin the first time we went through this. I wondered, I wondered why you didn't react when we were prepping. Ragamuffin. Oh, my. In this way, Feyre is not unusual among the inner circle. In contrast, she definitely felt like an outsider in the spring court. What's sad, though, is that before the revelation of everyone's history, Feyre is afraid she's offended the members of the inner circle. This is a product of her time at the spring court and suggests that Feyre never really fit in there since she seemed to be walking on eggshells during her interactions with the courtiers. The fact is that the majority of the inner circle are not title bearers, not royalty in some regard. Does this make Feyre feel more equal to them? It's a great question, and I think there's something to it because at this point Farrah doesn't want titles but at the end of the book is she title hungry she's the savior of the rainbow she's high lady she ends up accepting those titles let's say she accepts them but she's not the one seeking after them she's not not seeking them we'll have to discuss this in later episodes oh let's circle back later let's circle back also Cassian's reaction really bugged me here, not just because he spat wine across the table, which is like A, gross, but B, it seems like a caricature of a moment. 
It's not something that's actually done. And in fantasy books, what makes readers love a story is when you're grounded in moments of reality. Additionally, let's give Farrah a freaking break, all right? Everyone here knows that she just broke up with Tamlin the day before. Can we stop laughing at Farrah and can everyone stop making Farrah feel uncomfortable? This is my campaign. This is the hill I will die on. I think it's a great point that even though we're pointing out the ways the inner circle and Tamlin's courtiers are different, in a lot of ways, they're also very similar. Yeah, like the spring court didn't care about her trauma. They went on laughing, living life Mm -hmm. and doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. No one here cares. Just the day before Mm -hmm. she broke up with her fiance. People were very sensitive with me like the week after for my breakup where, oh, would you like cheese? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No one was like bullying me and spitting wine at me. He wasn't spitting wine at her. He was just reacting to what she said to him. No one does that in real life. It It comes out of your nose. um, I've done all the above. You're disgusting. (laughs) I am disgusting. (laughs) Moving on from wine spitting, throughout the course of the evening, Farah examines the inner circle. There is a unique openness among the group that Farah hasn't seen before between Tamlin and his court. Farah uses her innate compassion and empathy, so common to her when she was human, to become connected to the group. But why does this happen? When Farah finally works up the nerve to confront the group about not seeing them under the mountain, the group becomes subdued. Quote, Reese hadn't expected to see them again when he'd been dragged under the mountain, yet he had kept them safe somehow, and it killed them, the four people at this table. It killed them all that he'd done it. This is a stark contrast to someone like Ianthe. She and her family escaped to the continent and did not show remorse about it. The moment here with everyone just gets really quiet and it hits them like, yeah, we weren't able to do anything to help Reese. That is a nice moment, I'd say. Like, I've been harping on this chapter and I do want to give that a shout out of like, okay, that is a very nice subdued moment. Mm -hmm. All right, now let me get on to a different rant entirely. So you talk about Ianthe escaping and how she didn't have remorse for it. This is a total side note that I have here. If it was you and your family, would you feel remorse? People who are from war-torn countries manage to escape, and we don't judge them. I understand about feeling bad for the people who didn't make it out, but I never felt that leaving Prithian was a bad thing. It's what Farrah wanted to do in the first book, grab her family and run. Granted, Farrah stayed because she's a better person, and she only got lucky that she was able to help everyone. But I don't know. I feel like when we shame Ianthe, like we should shame Ianthe. We've already established I can't stand her. But the fact that she left... I don't think that's the thing that you shame someone for, like for trying to be safe. I view it a little bit differently. I think it's one thing to feel remorse for leaving behind people. And it's another thing to feel guilty for escaping. And Ianthe doesn't either. And Ianthe doesn't either. Gotcha. Okay. And so above all else, we're viewing this from Feyre's point of view. And Feyre ultimately is going to be resentful regardless Mm. because she broke. And it's easy to be resentful of people who escape. Yeah. I mean, like she's resentful because they got to do the thing she wanted to do. Right. But her own morals kept her. Right. Right. Exactly. And so I'm not trying to shame Ianthe for escaping. But because Ianthe's never, I wish I could have stayed and done more. Yeah, that's fair. There's a disconnect. No, I I get that. I see that. Cool. Thank you for having this discussion with me. Uh, You may continue. The fact that the inner circle feels pain for not being with Reese and for the sacrifices he made changes Feyre's perception of the group. We see this in how her view of Valaris has changed. Instead of being bitter that it is whole, 
Farah thinks, quote, perhaps it was a comforting thing to have a spot in Prithian that remained untouched, unsullied. When she sees Cassian's look of guilt and love for Reese, Farah is tempted to grab his hand to comfort him. It is at this moment that Farah begins to project onto Reese and, quote, a confession for a confession. I thought he had done it for my sake. Maybe he had things he needed to voice, couldn't voice to these people, not without causing them more pain and guilt. Farah just loves projecting. I mean, this time she's right. With Rhysand, she always ends up being right, but just loves projecting onto others. Yeah. I mean, it's just like how Reese always happens to be right about Farah. That's true. It's almost like they should be mates. Oh, my. So now that we've established that Farah's mind and heart are open, the rest of the exchange with the inner circle is an exercise in Farah finding something in common with each of them. This mirrors the same way Farah and Tamlin once shared their vulnerability and found a connection in the infirmary. First, let's start with Cassian. Farah thinks, quote, I'd never met anyone else in Prithian who had ever been hungry, desperate, not like I'd been. Cassian blinked, and the way he looked at me shifted, more assessing, more sincere. I could have sworn I saw the words in his eyes. You know what it's like. You know the market leaves. Again, Farah projecting? Or is there really a connection here? I don't know. I, I like to think there's a connection. I think there is a connection there. This is probably one of my actual favorite moments in this chapter because struggle sees struggle and it understands that. And this is the kind of real moment that grounds a fantasy novel. I agree. We see something similar with Azriel. Azriel describes the coldness of the mountains when he and Cassian used to sleep out in the snow. Feyre thinks, quote, I'd spent enough time in frozen woods to get it. Amarin, on the other hand, they don't necessarily have the same type of connection, but she is like Feyre in the sense that she is made of contradictions. Feyre observes of Amarin, quote, horrible, enchanting eyes. I think we should consider that Feyre is racist. And seeing as how you look like Amarin, that means she's racist against you. And I don't appreciate that. I think she just views Amarin as a threat, which means she might view me as a threat to She comments on her eyes. It's the swirling silver in them. Okay, fine. Or she's racist. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) Then we get to Moore. Moore was trapped like Feyre. And though she doesn't give all the details now, her words to Feyre make Feyre believe that, quote, Moore would not tell me what to wear or not wear. She would not allow me to step aside while she spoke for me. She would not, would not do any of the things I had so willingly, desperately allowed Ianthe to do. Looking at Moore, I couldn't explain it. Couldn't understand it. But I felt it. Like I could indeed go to dinner with her, talk to her. I would like to note that Moore did give her wine without asking. Describe my face. Um, fed up? This is a tell. This is not a show moment. SJM, you were not earning Moore's friendship at all here. It's just totally like a, oh, we could be friends, I suppose. I see in the like five words we said to each other. Farah and Moore's relationship eventually becomes real and I can see how they could be friends. But at the beginning, it is so unbelievably forced. And it's it's stuff like this that makes me angry. It's tropey. It's tropey. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I want to be a tropey wife. <laughs> can I have that as a shirt, please? Yeah. <laughs> Here just to be a tropey wife. <laughs> yep, yep. So I want to take a moment to draw a comparison between Reese's parents and Tamlin and Feyre based on the conversation that they're having at dinner. To start, Reese calls his own mother a wildcat. 
just like Feyre, has often been compared to a variety of animals. Also like Feyre, Reese's mother is taken from her people by Rhysand's father. I think it's so awkward that he calls his mom a wildcat. It's so weird. Like, it's, it's like, again, there's a lot of oddly sexual moments in here. Right? Where it's like, my mother, she was a wildcat in the bed. No. No, you don't say that about your mother. No, it's gross. I mean, I believe it, but it's gross. So Rhysand then says of his parents, quote, My father and mother, despite being mates, were wrong for each other. My father was cold and calculating and could be vicious, as he had been trained to be since birth. My mother was soft and fiery and beloved by everyone she met. She hated him after a time, but never stopped being grateful he had saved her wings. Okay, in my mind, this sounds a lot like Tamlin and Feyre. Feyre's thought, like, I'm grateful that he took me from my family, but still not okay. (laughs) It also sounds similar to Tamlin's parents, who we learned about in Thorns and Roses. So why is this whole exchange important? I wonder if this is SJM trying to convince readers who are loyal to the tamlin Fair relationship that sometimes what was good for a specific reason is not endgame. I am going to dare say that Rhysand's parents' dynamic also reflects Rhysand and Farrah's dynamic. Mm-hmm. Rhysand came and saved her. Also, his father was cold and calculating, just like Rhysand is, because Rhysand goes and is super cold and calculating and never learns from his mistakes and makes choices for everyone else, while Farrah is considered the warm one. Basically, everyone is Rhysand's parents. And she ha- produces fire at her fingertips. Mm. She's fiery. She's a wildcat in bed. No. Is she? No, she's not. No. You're shaming. You're like pointing no. at me. You're <laughs> like, no. Because someone else is called a wildcat in this book, and it's not Farrah. In bed? Just in general. Are you going to tell me? Do you want me to tell you now? Should we let the listeners know? It's Nesta. Oh. But we'll get to that when Uh we get to the human chapters. We'll get to that when we get to that. I do want to go back and say, you said that Reese never learns from his mistakes, but that's not true. I know. I actually, we do. He does learn from his mistakes, but. We we talked about that in an earlier episode. Okay, but he like doesn't fully learn from his mistakes because he still. He continues to make mistakes. Yeah, he learns and then chooses to continue to make them. Because he's a man. What is he? A fail. A fail. That's a female, in case anyone (laughs) forgot. (laughs) So that wraps up our chapter 16 discussion, and we move into chapter 17. At the start of this chapter, Feyre questions Reese about why she was able to feel him through their bond during dinner. Reese describes the bond as a living thing, shaped by what Feyre's needs were when the bargain was made. The bond is also their mating bond, mixed with their shared power. Reese isn't leaving any clues for Farah to start understanding what's going on between them. Granted, it's been a day since the breakup as I keep harping on, so I shall allow this one time, Reesand. For now. For now. But after this, you really need to start leaving hints. So the conversation goes like this. Reese tells Farah, quote, You needed not to be alone. Farah thinks, quote, But what about him? Fifty years he'd been separated from his friends, from his family. Okay, Farah's projecting here again, and once again, she happens to be right. The exchange they have is an important point in their relationship for a number of reasons, but let me read you some more highlights from their exchange first. When Farah remarks that Rhysand let everyone think the worst of him, he tells her, quote, I love my people and my family. Do not think I wouldn't become a monster to keep them protected. Feyre is starting to realize that the hardships she felt under the mountain, the loneliness, and the whole becoming a monster thing are things Reese felt for himself, too. 
I think this is important because Reese is willing to be a monster for the people he loves, just as Pharaoh once was for her sisters and her future. And I was going to say for Tamlin, but it's not really for Tamlin. Was she ever really a monster for Tamlin? She tells herself she was, but it wasn't really for him. No, I'm I'm like going through. Yeah, even even the little things that she killed leading up to it. No, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. it's always for her family. Yeah. And for survival. She was never a monster for the monster. Oh, wow. Feyre feels compassion for Reese here and maybe even sees herself in him. If nothing else, Feyre sees that Reese was willing and did far more than Tamlin did under the same circumstances. A.K.A. Reese became Amarantha's whore and killed others to protect Valaris and those he loves. Feyre thinks, quote, he'd done all that, had done such horrible things, done everything for his people, his friends. This is such a powerful moment when we start to see Rhysand and Farrah bond over not just their shared pain, but their shared effort. Everyone has pain in this book, but no one's tried or was willing to get down and dirty like Farrah and Rhysand. And I don't mean that in a sexy way. I think something more important than compassion is taking shape here. Rhysand is teaching Farrah that he can don personas other than his real self to protect those important to him. He's going to act a part depending on what the situation calls for. We know this as readers because we've seen this happen at the Summer Court, in the Court of Nightmares, and tons of other places. What's fascinating is that Farah is starting to learn this from Rhysand, and we're going to see in future chapters that she is going to implement these personas for herself as she assimilates more into Rhysand's court and as she grows closer to him. Farah is learning that there is power in pretending or wearing a mask, as she's going to call it. It's ironic that the mask Tamlin wore long ago had eventually become a sign of weakness for Feyre. But the masks are personas that Rhysand wears become a sign of strength. Mm, that's a very good one. Because she calls them masks. So it's an interesting mirror. Because, yeah, Tamlin's mask was never a mask. It was always a collar. Mm-hmm. Rhysand's masks are to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. Ooh, good job. Also, what's up with Feyre's sexy nightmare? Ah, yes. The sexy nightmare between Farah and Amarantha. So Farah has a nightmare about Amarantha, and it is oddly sexual. I'm going to give some quotes here. Quote, she, Amarantha, pressed a kiss to the hollow of my throat. She curved the knife over my breast, angling it towards my peaked nipples. The tip of the dagger pierced the sensitive flesh beneath my breast, their lips hovering a breath above mine as she pushed (laughs) so sexual it's so sexual so sex is obviously means power right like that's something that we've discussed before but this is also the first time that we're seeing amarantha in a sexual light slash threatening light like we've never gotten this between amarantha and farah before but it's no surprise that this is happening right after reese talks about being amarantha's whore and about doing what he needed to do to save his people This dream is Farrah putting herself in Reese's place as much as she can. It's her understanding his vulnerability. I think this is such a fabulous point because as much as we harped on chapter 16, here in chapter 17, SJM is doing a fantastic job really painting the picture of Farrah having empathy for Reesand. Yeah, SJM is right back on it. Yeah. She's a great writer. 16 was just a rough go. Yeah, it was. She's back to her good old self. God, I hope SJM never listens to this. (laughs) Just this episode. She can listen to all the other ones. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. 
this nightmare is telling us as readers that Farah is putting herself in Raysan's shoes. And this is perfectly timed with the bathroom scene where Farah wakes up from the nightmare and is not able to keep her food down. If you were not clear about Sarah J. Mass's intentions for Farah and Raysan, this should be your sign. This is a clear contrast to the first chapter of Mist and Fury with Farah and Tamlin. Rhysan wakes Feyre up from her nightmare, and then he holds her hair and comforts her while she vomits. On one hand, Feyre is clearly not in control, as demonstrated from her nightmare, from her vomiting, and from the flames at her fingertips. She still has a long way to go before she will be in control, as the situation is conveying to us. On the other hand, this is an important piece of emotional intimacy that is developing Tamlin denied Feyre that intimacy when she vomited every night at the spring court. Here, though, we see Feyre and Rhysand have a beautiful exchange where they both admit to their guilt of doing horrible things to protect those they love or loved. It is such a nice moment between the two of them. It is a really she's sweet... she's vomiting her guts off. It's, it is a sweet moment when you're throwing up. <laughs> and, it is. It is. It, but here's the thing. He's got to do the work. He's got to hold your hair. I don't care if I put my hair up in a ponytail. You hold it back, you stroke my back, and you say, good job. I was about to say good girl, but that's... Sexual? Good girl. I like it when you throw up like that. No, 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 no. no. I'm just trying to say, like, be, just be supportive. Like, actually, don't just watch. Yeah, no. Physically be there. Yeah. That's a good girl. No. (laughs) No. I want to backpedal a little bit. Before Pharaoh wakes up, Rhysan is calling her name. And when she does wake up, she thinks, quote, the voice was at once the night and the dawn and the stars and the earth and every inch of my body calmed at the primal dominance in it. This is not the first time Rhysand's voice has dominated Farah. And I wonder, is this his power as High Lord or is it the mating bond speaking to her? Because nobody know. else's commands have ever impacted Pharaoh this way before. Oh, I don't know which one I want it to be. Because on one hand, if it's the mating bond, like, screw that. What, like, you're able to, you know, command them through the mating bond? Like, uh, not here for that. But then at the same time, you know, it, it's, I don't want to say it's sweet. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm conflicted. Like, I, what if he was like, Farah, make me a sandwich. <laughs> Okay, not sweet, but he's trying to help her. Yeah, no, it's totally sweet. Like, I want, no, please, someone, like, wake me up with that voice that's, like, that consuming. Like, you know it's a deep voice. Oh, yeah. It's hot. <laughs> not that. <laughs> it was not that one. It would be hot. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know that, like, hot British uh, TikToker who has all the tattoos? Yeah. The voice actor? Yes. That one. That one. If you guys don't know who we're talking about, we first need to figure out if he's single. Also, don't remember his handle off the top of my head. Not at all. At the end of chapter 17, Feyre and Rhysand go to the prison for the first time. And as we know, Feyre is unable to make herself go into the depths of the prison because of her trauma. Because of this, Feyre feels that she has failed. And as a result, she doesn't get out of bed for the rest of the day. As we've seen before, Feyre is using sleep as a means of avoidance or escape. Why does this happen here? She's just had this really pivotal moment with the inner circle and with Rhysand in the last chapter and this chapter, where she's recognized there are others with whom she not only feels a connection, but have also suffered in ways similar to her experience. What I think is happening is that Feyre's trauma is surfacing and resisting the next step in her progression. 
I really like this chapter. I think it's strong because of how jarring it is. Mm -hmm. Because we go from, all right, going to be part of your team. We're going to go do this. Sure, I had a nightmare. And then how short their trip to the prison is Mm -hmm. and how anticlimactic it is. It's extremely jarring. And I think that is done so freaking well as a writing device. I agree. This brings me into my next conversation point after you ask your next question. What it is, it's taking the reality of what the character has just experienced and impacting what the plot is supposed to be doing. Yeah, but the way that it's written, though, is so short. Yeah. It's so unbelievably short and you don't even process what happened, really. Mm -hmm. It's jarring. It's very much like we just had a long ass chapter about dinner, right? And finally we're like, and she tries to go to the mountain, freaks out and leaves. It's a reflection of like how fair is feeling. And we get to experience that without having SJM tell us what she's experiencing. Right. It's good stuff. This brings me to a question that I just thought of. Would Feyre have reacted this way if she had not had the nightmare the night before? Hmm. Yeah. Don't know. I think, okay, so she would have definitely had a reaction, but would it have been like that visceral? Right. That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. And I didn't put that together until this moment, but I think it wouldn't have been that much of a gut punch for her Mm -hmm. if she hadn't had a nightmare. And this is a huge miscalculation on Reese's part. I don't know what he was thinking. Mm -mm. Even if she didn't have that nightmare the night before, it's still a huge mistake of bringing her to the prison and not warning her properly, Mm -hmm. not giving her a pep talk of like, look, we're going to go down to a prison. It's going to be underground. I need you to be aware of this. Like, let's do some breathing meditation before we go in. It's a huge miscalculation because he was there witnessing her throwing up. Do you think Reese was expecting better from her? Did he or was he trying not to stress her out by not telling her? I really don't know. It hurts my soul thinking that he expected her to react better. I wonder to what extent it was him testing her boundaries. Also unacceptable. No, it's unacceptable. Yeah, no. Absolutely. Like that also hurts my soul too. Right, right. I mean, and we're going to see this when we get to the Weaver chapters as well. (sighs) So mad. He's a little insensitive. A little? A little, Amy? Can you see him smiling? A little? He shook her and yelled at her when she thought slightly, when she had kind of suicidal thoughts. I know. He grabbed her arm when it was broken and pulled it. He's not always lovely. No, no. I mean, his loveliness outshines. But, you know, here we are ready to highlight his non-shiny bits where the sun don't shine. (laughs) So I have another question relating to Farah being unable to go into the prison. I've got answers. Great. I'm excited to hear them. Is Feyre's inability to go into the prison purely avoidance of going into a dark place that reminds her of Under the Mountain that will trigger her trauma? Or is it more than that? Is it a resistance to becoming too close to Resand and the Inner Circle? What do I mean by this? The members of the Inner Circle have all had their hardships and have come out the other end. Feyre, however, is still in the process of her sorting through her shit. By resisting becoming too close to the inner circle, she's ultimately resisting facing her demons. Yeah, I don't have an answer. My answer is I agree. You asked a question, then you answered it, and I agree with all of it. Okay. I'm sorry. I wrote. I know I wrote discuss, but as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, that covers it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, good job, Amy. You did it. You can go home now. <laughs> okay. We're done with the episode. Let's pack up. <laughs> Onward and outward to chapter 18. So chapter 18 starts with the first instance of someone giving Feyre jewelry with a purpose. Amran invades Feyre's bedroom to loan Feyre an amulet 
Amarin claims helped her escape the prison. Now, if you've read the book, you know this is a lie. We'll examine that later. Why, then, does Feyre accept the amulet when we know her aversion to jewelry? Note that when Amarin first throws the amulet onto the bed, Feyre doesn't touch it. This is after Amarin says that the amulet helped her get out of the prison. Instead, it is only after Amarin says, quote, I do not give the amulet lightly, but you may borrow it while you do what needs to be done and return it to me when you are finished. And then, you know, Amarin makes it very clear she'll hunt Feyre down if Feyre doesn't return it, yada, yada, yada. Then and only then does Feyre touch the amulet and accept it. I feel the same way about lending out books. Mm. I will find you and I will mess you up. I will hunt you down. I will hunt you down. You give me back my book. There's a reason why Amarin is the first one to give Feyre jewelry. Not in this book, but we'll say within the inner circle. Like I said, Feyre hates jewelry and Amarin loves it. This is when Ferris starts to really not hate it because now it's serving a purpose it can protect, except it's a lie and it can't protect her. But like, whatever, you know, the, the sentiments there. I think this is also maybe a point where Ferris starts to like Amarin now that she knows that she can be bought. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Reese expresses shock that Amarin gave Ferris the amulet as Reese and Ferris approach the prison. But does his shock extend to the fact that Ferris accepted it since he knows her mind? I ask this because Feyre is shocked when Rhysand draws a sword. Remember, she considered weapons like fine jewelry earlier in the book. This is an interesting parallel. They're both wearing jewelry they consider to be weapons or weapons they consider to be jewelry. Oh, love that point. I always did wonder why Reese never said anything more. You know, like he just looks at her being like, huh, she gave that to you. Mm -hmm. For someone who can't stop talking... (laughs) <laughs> it's incredible that he conveniently stops talking in that moment. It's because he tells her conveniently. I did examine this during my reread. He tells her to stop talking because the prisoners are listening. Oh, <laughs> they conveniently ha- end up getting interrupted so that they can't finish the conversation yes, about the necklace. Exactly, exactly. I can't be mad at convenience. Nope. As a writer. Nope. I live by them. Yep. So I want to draw another comparison that I found particularly fascinating that may mean nothing and maybe purely coincidence, but I want to point it out anyway. Feyre asks Reese about Azriel's scarred hands. Reese explains that at the age of eight, Az's brothers scarred his hands for fun. At 11, Az was released from his prison within his family's home and sent to train at an Illyrian camp, where he finally learned to fight and fly like his Illyrian instincts demanded. As we learn in Thorns and Roses, and are reminded of in Chapter 16 of Mist and Fury, Feyre's mother dies when she is eight, binding her and in some ways scarring her mentally with the promise to take care of her family. Then, at the age of 11, Father Archeron loses the fortune, at which point Feyre and her family move into the village. Now, it could be coincidence that the ages of 8 and 11 were used in both Feyre and Asriel's histories, But at the same time, they do seem to have an odd connection. At eight, they are both scarred physically or mentally in ways a child should not be by a family member. And then at 11, they are both released into a cruel world or a different world to learn skills vital to their survival and integral to the role they play in their fates. More like cruel summer. Except it's cold in the mountains. I could be reaching, but it was a fun thought exercise. I like this exercise. I like where you went with it. I would also say, then, does that mean that Farah relates more to Asriel in general than she does to Cassian? If you if you feel like you're reaching, ready for this, eight, 
plus 11, 19. The same age Pharaoh was in book one. Oh. It all comes together. Nice. But I do feel like there are major similarities there. Yeah. And I'm going to say it was purposefully done. I think so, too, because we're going to see in future chapters how Asriel and Pharaoh continue to connect. Who do you think Pharaoh has the better connection with? Asriel or Cassian? I go back and forth on it. It is pretty even, but... Yeah, she's connected to both of them in different ways. And I actually appreciate more now how connected she is to each of the Bat Boys. Yeah. Like, there's actual relationship and groundwork that is done. Oh, wow. See what happens when you spend time developing and working towards trust? Why am I so mad at this? I don't know. It also makes sense then that Nesta puts, I mean, this is not great on Pharaoh's part, but it makes sense that she entrusts her sister to Cassian and Azrael. Oh, like Pharaoh, you mean Pharaoh entrusts Nesta. Nesta. To Cassian and Azrael, not only, you know, in Wings and Ruin, but also in Silver Flames. Why do you think it's bad on Pharaoh? No, it's bad on Pharaoh for putting her sister in prison. <laughs> Basically. She didn't put anyone in prison? In House of Wind, she puts her under house arrest. Oh. Yeah, but she was such a bitch. Doesn't make it okay. Does it? I don't know. I mean, at that point, I'm pretty sure Nessa's broken a few laws. We'll have to examine that. When it's time. When it's time. Now is not that time. Silver Flames uh, deep dive season. We're not going to talk about it. We're not talking about that. <laughs> As Feyre and Rhysan climb the mountain, Rhysan tells Feyre to not talk because the prisoners are listening. Feyre was once no better than these prisoners, willing to do whatever is needed to get what they want or need. And in Feyre's case, that was to preserve her life when she was under the mountain. Rhysan says, quote, they'll sell any bit of information for food, sex, maybe a breath of air. How do you get sex under the mountain? By selling your... I don't know. I'm, I'm just... That's d- actually a really great question. I, like, I think about that every time. Like, but how do you have sex with a rock? <laughs> From the guards that are out of the rock? I don't know. Like, you have to go into the cage, right? But then you have to open the cage. Is it through the cage? I don't know. Does the bone carver get sex? I don't want to know. I do He appears want to know. has a child. No, it's not what I want to know. That's not how he'll appear to me. <laughs> so why is it that Farrah doesn't relate to the prisoners? Probably because they're the real baddies. But still, we never get a moment of sympathy from her, which we normally do. So in response to this, I think we need to go into the next part of the quote. Feyre thinks, quote, I could do this. I could master this fear. I think Feyre doesn't exhibit empathy because it's kind of in between the lines. I don't know to what extent that Feyre's fear is not being able to get out as much as it is fear of having to become like the prisoners again. Or is it fear of Farah being worthy of being a prisoner because maybe she relates to them more than she wants to because she's also a murderer? Mm, and that's why she's afraid she's never going to get out because she belongs there. She feels like she belongs there. We just solved the mystery. We did. Well, So as we've alluded to, going into the depths of the prison reminds Farah of being trapped under the mountain. But I want to suggest that this is meant to be an evolution and that though it mirrors her death under the mountain... This whole process is also a step beyond her death. In season one, we harped on the fact that Feyre tells Tamlin in chapter 17 of Thorns and Roses that all she wants when she dies is for someone to hold her hand so that she isn't alone. Yet no one is physically holding her hand when Amarantha kills her at the end of the book. 
Here in Mist and Fury, we see Reese holds Feyre's hand as they descend into the, quote, immortal gloom of the prison. And Reese does not let go throughout their entire descent, even when she stops to drink water. Like their bargain in Thorns and Roses, Reese keeps Feyre grounded the same way he did when she was under the mountain. Then, Feyre discusses her death with the bone carver, and in that moment, she relives the whole process of her dying and coming back. When Reese and Feyre ascend back up through the prison to emerge out of the mountain, Reese once again holds Feyre's hand, just as they both held on to their bond when Feyre was remade in Thorns and Roses. It's so stunningly beautiful, and all I can say is chef's kiss. Your chef's kiss. Great observation. Thank you. I was very proud of that. Yeah, you should be proud of that. Also, he doesn't let go of her hand even as they drink water. Mm Mm-hmm. But what if she needed that hand? Maybe they held hands and he opened the cap for her. And then she pours for both of them. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe there's a stream in the mountain. That makes it easier. So then she's like she one hand scooping it out. I don't know. <laughs> During their descent into the darkness, Feyre thinks, quote, only the lights and his resand's hand kept me from feeling as if I were about to free fall into darkness. The darkness that she just called immortal gloom. So we're coming back to this free fall theme. And all I can say now is that Ferris still doesn't know what she's doing with her immortal life. And she's still unsure of what the future holds. But here and now in this moment, Ferris has Reese to guide her, just as he's given her a momentary purpose to help him understand what Hyburn wants by seeking out the bone carver. And that, for a moment, is why the free fall doesn't scare her. I hit really close to home. Oh, I mean, not too close to home. I don't have a resand, but just <laughs> where I'm like, oh, it must be nice for you, Farah, to have someone who's hot and guiding you. And telling you, you what your next step is. Yeah, when you don't know what to do with your immortal life. like Basically, what you're saying is resand is a hot chimney cricket. <laughs> okay, I, that is what I'm saying now. <laughs> Let your conscience be your dirty guide. <laughs> I cannot resist the need to point out that at one point during their descent, Reese tells Feyre of the bone carver and Feyre thinks, quote, I tried not to start bleeding like cattle. And once again, Feyre compares herself to an animal. She just can't stop being an animal again. And it's not even a sexual animal. <laughs> Be a sexier animal, Feyre. <laughs> at least with dough, that was like kind of sexy. Right. Right. Like, yeah, we can all agree. Does are way sexier than cattle. Oh, yeah, for sure. What's a sexier animal than doe? Swan. I was going to say snake, but (laughs) but maybe not. Zeus was a swan. That's true. That is true. He was also a bull at one point. Ooh, not sexy. Not Not sexy. When Farrah describes coming back to her body after she's died, she tells the bone carver, quote, I followed that bond back to me. I knew that home was on the other end of it. There was light then, but I wanted to go home, so I followed the bond home. So I have a couple of thoughts about Feyre's bond with Reese in this moment of her being brought back to life. First off, the bond or Reese brings Feyre back into the light. Reese has done this before in Thorns and Roses. First, when they were under the mountain, Reese brought light into the room where Feyre and Tamlin were having their little makeout session. Then again, Reese brought light to Feyre after Amarantha was killed, and Feyre followed the bond to the outside where Reese was waiting. My second thought is that the bond has Reese at the end, which Feyre describes as being home. We know for Reese, he knew when Feyre died that she was his mate. 
Somehow then, I wonder if Feyre's mind must have also known this, or at least her body knew it through the bond. For now, though, it's just a breadcrumb for the average reader who doesn't know what's going on. But you're above average, guys. You are above average. Never let us tell you you're an average reader. No, I wasn't trying to imply can't believe... that our listeners are average No, readers. our listeners are above average. They're A-class, high Anyone class. who's not our listener, average reader. I do want to give a trigger warning for the next little bit of this conversation. Ferret also talks about wanting to kill herself after the trial, which we learn here that her desire to end her life goes way farther back than we realize to begin with. It helps that Rhysan shows some restraint by not grabbing her and shaking her in this instance, but it shows just how much groundwork Farah has to do to get to a healthy spot later. You go, Farah. We love you. Farah gets really emotionally exhausted and drained and hollowed after talking to the bone carver. Maybe it's because I've been going to therapy for eight years, but I feel like I would have like pulled up a seat and just like let it all out. And maybe I think the bone carver would have looked like my therapist. Shout out, Esther. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bone carver and I would have had a good talk. Probably. You would have just unleashed. We sounds like we don't need all, we don't, we're done. We've gotten all the information we need. I'm like, wait, I need more. I need to talk. <laughs> I paid for my 50 minutes. <laughs> the bone carver's like, I have no other information to give you. Please stop talking to me. So the last point before we move on to breadcrumbs. When Feyre tells Rhysand how the bone carver appeared to her, he, quote, shuddered, the most human gesture I'd seen him make. Once again, I have two thoughts. Two thoughts? Never more, never less. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> My first thought. Reese appears human to Farah, and in some ways this brings him to her level, and that makes him more attainable than Tamlin, who works so hard to never show weakness. I think this and previous instances of him appearing mortal are important to Farah developing a connection with Rhysand. Second, Reese shudders after Feyre describes the bone carver as, quote, a boy, around eight, dark-haired and blue-eyed. Mm. Does Reese know? Mm-hmm. Does mm -hmm. he know mm -hmm. in that moment? Does he look into her mind? Because she's probably all mind jello at this point. Right. He could easily slip on in there. And does he see a boy that maybe looks a little like him? Maybe looks a little bit like her, too? Might look like a little bit like Azrael. I don't know how I feel about that. Daddy Azzy. You just messed me up. I'm sorry. Here's my other thought. <laughs> Here's my other thought. And then when I was prepping, I went. <gasps> yeah, I didn't. You, you gasped. You looked at me and then you like immediately like grabbed your paper, moved away as if I was about to like look over your shoulder. So here's the thought I had with okay. that gasp. I'm this is you've really hyped this up. I have. I need this to be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, tell me if it's worth it. I wonder if Reese recognizes, spoiler for Wing and Ruin, guys, I wonder if Reese recognizes that the bone carver appears to Feyre as their child. And is that why he's so chill when Feyre says she wants to wait to have kids? Because he knows eventually like, he'll get one. Oh, like he's overly cocky about it? Yes. Like he's just like, all right, whatever. We can wait. I'm going to get my boy. Yeah. Oh. That's something. I might be reaching, but... I'm on board with that. I could see it. So, uh, spoiler for Silver Flame now, like, Farrah is overly confident there because she feels like she's already seen their son, but right. he doesn't have wings. Right. So maybe 
I don't know. Like now I'm kind of like, well, are they both overly confident? Or... I think so. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think so. And that's yeah. why the sudden news that the baby could kill Feyre. Is that shocking? Because that shocking both to... of them thought it would never happen. Right. Yeah. Oh, just imagine like the subtle swagger he has now. Yeah. Like he's like, I'm going to get a son. Yeah. I know we're going to end up together. It's all good. It's fine. Bone Carver saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Kind of wish they had a girl. I choose to believe they will have a girl. Oh, they 100% will have a girl. But I would have liked the girl to be first. We're biased. Yeah. And with that, we come to the breadcrumbs. Just want to say for this breadcrumbs, massive spoilers. If you have not read any more of Sarah J. Mass's works, uh, you know, uh, other other stuff, just please know that you're entering spoilers here. Tread carefully. Tread carefully. We've warned you. Okay. Chapter 16. Pharaoh thinks of Cassian, quote, There was some rough hewn about his features, like he'd been made of wind and earth and flame. Flame like Nesta. Like silver flame. Reese also talks about Sangreva being raided, which we know that's where Gwen is located right now. That is definitely it, when I reread that and I realized that that was Gwen. It hurt my soul. Yeah. I mean, and Asriel, it's... they were like, Asriel knew about this. I'm like, yeah, because he saved her. Yeah. Oh, my God. Next, we have more spoilers. Next, this is straight up Hosab spoilers. So and yeah, lots like, of spoilers. it's like if you haven't stopped listening now, this is your own fault. Chapter 17, when they're going under the prison. Quote, this place was made before High Lords existed, before Prithian was Prithian. Some of the inmates remember those days. Remember a time when it was Moore's family, not mine, that ruled the North. That's because they're multiverse people. Multiverse. Another quote. Moore is my court overseer. She looks after the dynamics between the Court of Nightmares and the Court of Dreams and runs both Valaris and the Hewn City. I suppose in the mortal realm, she might be considered a queen. And then finally, the prison is law unto itself. The island might even be an eighth court, like the dust court. Because that's the only solar thing that's missing. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know more details about why these quotes are spoilers and what we're hinting towards, please go back and listen to our episode where we interview Lily, also known as Happy Hermit on TikTok. That is season one, episode 14. And... The previous two quotes that Jack just read were from chapter 18. Also in chapter 18, Pharaoh says, quote, In that war where your armies fail and Cassian and Azrael are dead and even more is gone, Reese responds, quote, If that day comes, I'll find a way to break the spell on Amrin and unleash her on the world and ask her to end me first. All right, Reese, High Lord, and Oracle strikes again. He is the surreal. He is the surreal. He's been hiding underneath the cloak the whole time. Yep. Again, in chapter 18, the bone carver is, quote, a dark-haired boy sitting against the far wall, eyes of crushing blue taking in resand. And then later, the bone carver's violet eyes seemed to glow brighter. Now, I would like to blame listening to the book instead of reading the book on this, but how the hell did I miss the fact that the bone carver looks like a small version of Reese? I I don't know. I don't know. We all kind of did. I'm kind of ashamed. Yeah, you should be. And our last breadcrumb for this episode, the bone carver says of the cauldron, quote, it could not be destroyed for it had made all things. And if it were broken, then life would cease to be. 
very convenient for everyone to forget that as we go into Wing and Ruin later. Convenient or inconvenient? Inconvenient. I'd say (laughs) it'd just be the thing. Be like, hey, (laughs) when Wing and Ruin and it's all like falling apart and life's about to be destroyed. Fair is like, ah, crap. You know, the bone carver did tell us that one time. Ah, shit. Everyone else is mad. They're like, Reese, you didn't tell us the one thing that mattered. I blame both Reese and Feyre on that one. Oh, for sure. So we asked ourselves a question, and that question was, to what extent is Feyre open to forming new relationships or attachments? Ooh, I think she wants to be open, but can't be. I don't even know if she wants to be. I feel like she's a shadow of wanting to be open to it. I think she just wants to not be what she's used to, which is the spring court. I think that's fair. I think she wants to want to be open. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't think she has the capacity right now. Farrah wants to be open and she wants to start these new relationships. I think more than anything, she just doesn't want to be alone. Mm. She's just been alone for a really long time. Oh, that hit my soul. Poor Farah. Yeah. You're not alone anymore, honey, sweetie. Sugar pie. Baby girl. <laughs> wildcat. <laughs> Tropy <a> wild <laughs> Tropy wife. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Book Talk for Book Talk. We encourage you to rate and subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. Next week, we will be exploring chapters 19 through 21 of A Court of Mist and Fury. We would love to hear your thoughts based on today's conversation. You can submit your comments to our form at booktalkforbooktalk.com for a chance to have your feedback discussed during a weekly mini episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please visit our website, booktalkforbooktalk.com, to view our latest merch and learn about supporting the show through Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Venmo. Or find us on TikTok and Instagram at the handle booktalkforbooktalk. Bye! Bye!